What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. It is April 16th. I am Teddy Cahill and joining me as always is Joe Healy. We are here on our second podcast of the week. And of course, that means it is time for us to re-watch, or I guess in my case here, watch for the first time an old game, a classic game from college baseball history. This is a, a special one for, for Joe. We've got the 2006 Lincoln Regional between Nebraska and Manhattan. And we will get into that in depth here. Uh, in a couple minutes, we have former Manhattan pitcher Chris Cody, current Manhattan pitching coach Chris Cody, uh, is joining us uh, on the podcast to, to talk about that regional game uh, from 2006. But before we get to that, Joe, uh, as we close another week, uh, another college baseball this week of quarantine, how, how are you doing over there? Doing well, hanging in. Um, it is definitely um, getting stranger to, in some way, because there was so much going on when this all started, it was kind of easy to forget that as like a Friday came along, for example, like, oh, if this were a regular Friday at this time of year, I'd be, you know, either at a game or watching games, what have you. At first, it, that kind of, I hadn't really kind of gotten into that rhythm, but now it definitely is hitting home a little bit more because we're, I mean, we are really at the point where we'd be entering what we could call the stretch run, really, in the college baseball season now, which is kind of hard to believe because it, it felt like it had just started in some ways when we shut down. Um, but it's been, you know, basically five weeks, four weeks, five weeks since we, uh, I guess this will be the fifth weekend that we've lost uh, coming up here. So it, um, it it's getting a little bit more real, I suppose. Um it will get more difficult and stranger before it gets better just because we're now getting to the point of the season where we'd really be talking about, I mean, this podcast here would largely be discussing the impact of games that were about to happen this weekend on the field of 64. And do, do you want to know what some of those games are? I haven't really done this, but while you were talking, I decided to pull it up. This was, yeah, let's, this let's was a, it. this was a big weekend. This was Arizona state UCLA. I very might, well might have been in LA. That wasn't that wasn't confirmed yet, but that was that was very much a strong possibility. This is Louisville, Miami. This was Bedlam. Oh uh, yeah. This was Arkansas LSU and Vanderbilt Ole Miss. Mm. And also Pepperdine Santa Clara. And, you know, while hey. I just said all of those things and you might be like, why am I mentioning Santa Clara? I don't know. Santa Clara was what, like 12 and five. Yeah. 12 and five when they shut down. Yeah. Like for the West coast conference, like that might've been a, a wholly like serious series. Um, and, and instead we, we don't get any of that. Like some of those are like absolute bangers. Yeah, no doubt. Where's the, where was, was Bedlam? Are they split that anymore or was it just a campus site? Uh, they are now going campus sites. Okay. Yeah. And I guess so it was supposed to be in Norman. This was supposed to be the okay. first year of campus sites for Bedlam. And okay. They're going to be at at Oklahoma, not at the new park in uh, in Stillwater. Yeah, because that that's one of my you know again we hadn't 
we hadn't locked down all of our second half of the season travel plans. But one thing that was certainly at least on my radar was trying to get to Stillwater uh, to see the new stadium. And of course that is still on the table for 2021, of course, but um, there was a weekend, I guess it was, I guess it was a couple weekends ago now when they were opening up against TCU and Oklahoma was playing Texas. Like that was kind of the weekend I had, I had circled to maybe do that. Uh, both of those things in the one weekend, which would have been a lot of fun, but, but with the way Oklahoma was playing um, with the potential, at least that Oklahoma state has and had maybe not quite yet shown uh, that one could have been fun. So uh, certainly, obviously the other UCLA, Arizona state, big Pac 12 matchup and Miami and Louisville, uh, at least preseason, the, the, the two, top teams in the ACC. Um, so, uh, yeah, big weekend. That's kind of funny that we went and looked at, at this today as opposed to any other week because this this might have been the biggest weekend of the season. I mean, we'll never know, but uh, sure feels like that could have been the case. Yeah, I mean, those SEC matchups, like it's the SEC matchups like that happen basically every weekend. But to get Miami and Louisville going at it and Arizona State and UCLA, so presumably – the top two teams in both of those conferences. Um, I mean, you can make a case in the ACC that that something else would have some other team belongs in in the top two. Um, But I I think that those were, those were who we had expected it to be. Those who that that's who it was through one weekend of conference play and um, Arizona state and UCLA both had kind of emerged at the top of the pack and, to get both of those in, in one weekend along with Bedlam. And then I should also mention UNC NC state Um, like that's, that makes for a pretty, pretty loaded weekend when you then throw in the requisite like top 10 sec series like Vanderbilt will miss. Um, So yeah, that's what we're missing out on this weekend. Uh, I'm kind of sorry that I actually pulled that up now. Um, (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I wish this had been just like one of the more normal weekends where like the SEC like produces like a couple top 25 matchups, but they're like, yeah, I mean like Florida's playing, uh, you know, whatever the last ranked top 25 team is and, you know, Vanderbilt has, has somebody else. And, uh, then like one other conference manages to produce a top 25 matchup and and otherwise it's just kind of like, well, you know, it's a little lighter a weekend as these things go, but no, that is not the case here. Yeah. I'm typically someone, it's funny that, all of this has put me in a different mind space than I normally am because I'm typically someone who tries to live by, um, live by saying never to wish time away because like not to get philosophical with it, but you know, life, life is just short and you know, you got to make the most of it. Um, so I, I try not to wish time away and try to kind of, to use a, a phrase that coaches like to use, be where my feet are. Um, that being said, I do anticipate dealing with the season having ended the way it did gets easier once we get beyond the season itself so like once we flip the calendar to july yes it's about to get harder it's been one thing to put it away for the last month there have been bigger things going on it hasn't been you know it's it's march and, and early april it's not a time where you know there are these big benchmarks on the calendar but when we get to the end of may and into June, it's it's just going to be much more front of mind. Like, oh, this is regionals weekend, or oh, it's selection Monday, or you know, th- this thing or that thing, and, and it's it's going to get worse. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And then you know, one day it'll it'll get better. You know, like I really do think once we get past where Omaha would have been, and we start looking at July, at least then. Right now, it just feels like yes, we are working toward 
let's just say opening day 2021 to say nothing of, you know, games in the fall and maybe summer ball, who knows? Certainly opening day 2021. And, and we still are in a, in a way working our way there, but it will definitely feel a little bit more uh, reasonable to think that way once we get past, past this current season. So yeah, it's going to get worse, but then it'll get better. Um, and hey, that's kind of been the way we've been living our lives for a different <laughs> reason for, for several weeks now. So um, it's, it's so, yeah, it's kind of tough to know what we've been missing. Um, but, uh, but better days, better days from a college baseball standpoint, and just in general will come. And, and I think that, uh, that we should all try to kind of have that optimistic view about it. Um, because, because that will be the case. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's only so much we can do. Uh, at, at this point, we just kind of have to, you know, keep watching, keep doing what we're, we're told to do by, you know, various healthcare uh, officials and, and whoever else, um, you know, in, in the authorities is, is speaking at, at the time. So just got to gotta keep focused on that. And, and hopefully if we do all of that, we can get back to, to baseball sooner than later. Uh, but today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are continuing, like I mentioned, our, our series of, of rewatching classic games. And uh, I, I threw out all of these these big time series. Joe, uh, do you know where Manhattan would have been this weekend? Not, you know, not offhand. I have to be honest. Not, not offhand. I, I assume they, uh, some playing a series somewhere in the Northeast. They had a home series against Monmouth is, is where Manhattan thought they were going to be. And that's where Chris Cody would have been this weekend uh, as, as Manhattan's pitching coach. But instead he, he opted to, to do, I mean, arguably even better thing and, and talk to the baseball America college podcast team. Um, probably not actually better, but that, that's what we opted for is the for opening game of the 2006 Lincoln regional. Um, it's uh, featured Nebraska, the, who is who's hosting at Haymarket Park, and Manhattan, who had just reached the NCAA tournament for the first time in 41, 49, excuse me, years. Uh, Joe, I mentioned this was a kind of a special game for you. Why don't you remind the folks why that's the case? Yeah, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, in the more kind of big picture, far-reaching way is that um, it, it's no secret that I have a soft spot for low and mid-major teams, the smaller conferences. I went to a, a mid-major school. I, um, that's kind of um, one of the things that really sparked my interest in college baseball as a whole. Uh, this is one of the, and I've not taken the time to really examine the historical context as far as this goes, but this has to be one of the biggest uh, regional upsets ever. Uh, when you consider that Nebraska was not only hosting, but a national seed, they had been to Omaha the previous year, a really talented team just in general um, against Manhattan, who, to your point, um, you know, hadn't been to regional in a long, long time um, and comes from one of the smaller conferences from a baseball standpoint in the country. Um, the Metro Atlantic is not a conference that, that typically puts out the type of teams that you think are going to pull these types of upsets. Um, so there's that component. Um, beyond that, though, the more personal part of it, why this game uh, sticks out to me, is because I just remember exactly where I was when I watched it. Um, I was, I had just graduated high school, actually, this game 2006, summer 2006. Uh, I had just graduated high school, I mean, probably just like two weeks prior to this. Um, I was actually getting ready to go on vacation um, with my family and a, and a friend of mine to kind of celebrate my graduation. And um, I was packing up my suitcase. Um, I had it kind of laid out in my bedroom and 
had my TV on in my room and I was just scrolling through. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. I was just kind of scrolling through the, the channels because back then there was no national college baseball uh, carriage package for the regionals. Uh, Super regionals were on TV. Yes. College World Series, as it has been for years, was on TV. Absolutely. Regionals, not so much. It was more local. So sometimes Fox Sports, my local Fox Sports at the time was Fox Sports Southwest, would pick up a regional here or there. Um, certainly LSU uh, had, a, had a local deal or when ULL, um, as they were more commonly known at the time, uh, would get a local deal in that area. Uh, certainly Nebraska had a local deal and that's actually what this was. This was a, a local NET in Nebraska airing the game. And then I guess they had a deal with, with what was then known as CSTV, which is now CBS College Sports, um, to, to air at least this game. I don't know if they did the whole regional. I actually don't remember that part, if they did the whole regional or if it was just like the Nebraska games or what it was. But um, I was just hoping against hope. It was the Friday of regionals. I was just scrolling through the, the channel guide, basically, and like seeing, looking at all the sports channels, kind of crossing my fingers, there would be games on. Um, I knew actually that the uh, Rice's game, growing up in Houston, obviously I knew a lot about that program. Rice's game against Prairie View A&M was going to be aired later that day on CSTV. So I had a hunch that maybe there'd be an early game on, and sure enough, there was. It was this game. I found it. I was excited. Um, so it's funny that it worked out. This could have easily, I could have turned this game on and Nebraska wins 12 to two. And like, it's just, I probably would have quit watching in the middle innings and gone back to packing my suitcase and listening to regional games on online radio or local radio. If I could get any of the, you know, sometimes the, I don't know what time they would have, they would have played or if they were even in regionals that year, but A&M, you know, I could sometimes get their broadcasts on the radio in my room if it was a clear day and, I probably would have just gone back to doing that kind of stuff, checking scores online. Uh, but it turned out to be one of you know the great upsets in, in regionals in the 64 team era anyway in history. Um, so it was just kind of cool for me that, that uh, it's this really clear moment in my memory of college baseball. Um, and it, it just so happened to be this, this particular game. And the fact that it's out there on YouTube now is just uh, really fun for me. I stumbled upon this game a couple of years ago. So when we were putting together these lists of YouTube games, my mind went, to this game and a couple of others right away um, because I knew what what was out there so um, it was great to see it again I don't think I'll ever get too tired of watching this game because um, I mean for a couple of reasons it's a great performance it's a great upset it's a great game it also moves quick like there's not a whole there are not too many lulls in this game which is nice um, it helps there weren't really hardly any pitching changes uh, that certainly helps uh, Jabba Chamberlain who opposes Chris Cody in this game was, was pretty good um, you know he had his moments obviously but uh, made for made for a well-pitched game so um certainly if you were watching along i hope you enjoyed it um i, I understand that maybe you wouldn't have the, the personal attachment to it that i do but that's of course unique to me in that situation but uh, it was certainly a good experience going back and, and seeing it all again yes yeah, so if you are looking for this game if you didn't do your homework from from last week's pod you can find the game on youtube or you go over to Baseball America, uh, Joe's post is is eminently findable there, and link, the the YouTube link is is there in the story. So if you do want to go check that out, that is how you how you go about finding the game. With that, let's bring in Manhattan pitching coach and star of the 2006 uh, Manhattan team. He was the MAC Pitcher of the Year, uh, Chris Cody. We're very pleased to welcome our guest, Chris Cody, Manhattan assistant coach to the this episode of the Baseball America College podcast. Of course, when this 2006 game 
uh, was happening. Chris was on the mound for the Jaspers. And Chris, I, I, uh, I imagine that it, it's, this is kind of what gets talked about a lot of, around the program, I assume, and, and your year, that year overall, you were the uh, MAAC Pitcher of the Year and uh, just a fantastic season for the entire program. I, what kind of fond memories did, does this uh, bring up when, when people do start asking you about the 2016 and, and the tournament in general? Well, the, that day, and thanks for having me on, but uh, that day was probably the best day of my baseball life, to be honest with you. I mean, I've had a lot of great memories, but everything kind of circles back to that. Um, so many things happen as a result of um, – kind of the stars aligning that day, just us being there. Um, you know, it was a, it was an awesome ballpark. The, the atmosphere there was incredible. Um, our team, we were clicking on all cylinders. Just, uh, it, it was, it was incredible. Um, and obviously the way the game played out, I mean, we were, we were thrilled to just be playing in a game of that magnitude. You know, our program up to that point hadn't, uh, it had been a while since we had that level of success. So, um, luckily at the time, I didn't really take too much of a step back to, to think about all that. But uh, now that it's been, you know, I can't believe it's been you know 14 years. But uh, that's that's kind of what stands out. Yeah. So to set the stage that day, um, you guys had won 12 of your last 13 games to make it into the NCAA tournament, winning. Uh, the MAAC tournament along the way, beat uh, top-seeded LeMoyne to, to do that. And this is the first time Manhattan has been in the NCAA tournament for 49 years. What are you thinking about when you guys find out that you get drawn against Nebraska, which, of course, is you know a pretty big baseball brand at the time especially, and, and they have some pretty big stars on that team, starting with Java Chamberlain? Uh, it was um... – I remember the selection party when we had a little get gathering on campus. Um, we, we had no idea. There were some rumors about where we would get, you know, uh, sent for the, for the regional. Um, but then Nebraska came up and yeah, you think Nebraska, you think uh, big program. Um, my, my buddy and roommate uh, Kyle Wirtz said, you're going to look up and see a sea of red. Get, get ready for it, buddy. And uh, so, and he was right. It was, it was pretty cool going out there and, and looking up at that stadium and save, uh, save for our little section of uh, fans over behind the first base dugout wearing their uh, green shirts. It was, it was pretty amazing to see, you know, 10,000 red shirts and red hats. Uh, we knew we were in for it, but uh, I think we were all excited some of us probably thought we were playing with house money at that point, but, you know, I think we had some, some confidence, you know, we'd played well against some top programs earlier that year and we kind of proved to ourselves that we, uh, you know, if we played our game that we would be okay. I'm going to transition to talking about your start specifically. Um, what were your expectations going into that start? I mean, what were you kind of looking to accomplish? Obviously, it's pretty daunting to go in there. If you were to say before the game, I'm going to go in there and give up one run in a complete game against Nebraska, I mean, maybe you wouldn't have even thought that thought. And then secondarily, you know, you were a guy that 
wasn't going to blow anybody away with stuff. Do you feel like that gave you a little bit of an advantage against a team like Nebraska that was used to seeing Big 12 velocity at that time? I'm sure it did. I'm sure it played a factor. Um, yeah, going into the game, I, I just wanted to give us a chance. You know, I just didn't want to uh, – I wanted to keep it respectable. I knew that if uh, I could get through the first couple of innings, that's the kind of pitcher I was. Um, you know, once I could get into a groove and kind of get the – just slow their momentum, I know that they would be – their crowd would be raucous. I knew that their team would be pumped up to be hosting a regional. I mean, who wouldn't? So I knew that if we could just get through the first couple of innings, um, you know, and still be in it, and lo and behold, top of the second inning, we go out and hit a pair of – not to jump ahead here, but uh, we hit a pair of solo home runs to go ahead. And once that happened, it kind of planted a seed of, uh, okay, all right, we can do this now. And the kind of, the ball kind of was in our court, which was a huge confidence boost for me. And um, the whole team, we, we all played well that day. Uh, we played some really good defense. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty good complete team effort that day. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned those home runs, and they came on consecutive pitches to start the second inning. And I thought, you know, watching the game that, you know, Jabba in the first inning had been pretty dominant, and then all of a sudden he just gets ambushed to start the second inning. Did that, did the the feeling change in the dugout at all, or, or you know, what 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 did you think when when you saw those two balls go out in quick succession? It's tough to describe. Um, I mean, those two hitters, Matt Rosati and John Fitzpatrick. They, uh, I mean, we saw them do some pretty amazing things throughout that season and playing with them for multiple years. But uh, once I saw the ball leave both of their bats, I, I was, it was pretty amazing. The feeling that, uh, all right, yeah, we're here. And everyone knows we're here now. And uh, there were looks exchanged in the dugout. You know, the whole team was like, holy, you know what? And, uh, it just kind of accelerated, it ignited a flame, and uh, we were we were all pretty pumped up in that dugout, to say the least. Did Fitzpatrick ever get cheated on a swing? I mean, that guy, those were hacks. I mean, that guy was really up there to do, to do some damage, and it strikes me that he's the type of guy that uh, was kind of max effort every time he was up the plate. Yeah, yeah, you said it. Um, Fitzy, in the four years that we played together at Manhattan, he uh, – I don't remember too many times where he'd come back to the dugout without getting his money's worth, whether it was, he was all or nothing. Um, great hitter, you know, not just for the power, but uh, just an all around complete hitter. He was an all American in high school. He and I graduated the same year, uh, two different high schools, obviously, but, um, and Rosati the same way. Um, just complete hitters, not just up there trying to, trying to hit the ball a mile and striking out, you know, those guys were knew how to hit the ball in play. They were selective. They knew how to draw their walks. So, I mean, I don't care what program you are, or, you know, who you're facing. If you got two guys like that in the lineup that can, you know, pose a threat and, uh, you know, cause problems for you, it's, it gives you a chance no matter what program you are or who you're facing. <laughs> So in the middle innings, the game kind of settles into a little bit of a pace. Java settles back down. Nebraska, second time through the order, they start having at least more competitive at-bats against you. Was there, was there kind of a point as a team where you kind of had to take a deep breath and say, okay, we're in a battle now and kind of need to refocus and, and get back to doing what we're doing? 
Yeah, I, I remember feeling that way. I just, again, I wanted to just kind of keep it, keep it within our reach. And obviously when we had the lead, 2 nothing, and then they scored a sack fly. Camera, I think that was the fifth inning. Somewhere in the middle innings, they scored a sacrifice fly. Um, it was just, all right, just weather the storm. You know, if they get one here or there, that's fine. Just stay away from any crooked numbers and keep their crowd out of it. And that's kind of my focus. Um, when I, when I do go back and watch that game, I, I realize how lucky I got. Um, our shortstop Renee Ruiz made some plays that, you know, if he, if he doesn't make, or if he bobbles or, you know, split second here or there, it can change an inning. And, uh, in the sixth inning, I give up a hanging curve ball to the deepest part of the ballpark. Uh, talk about luck. You know, if that ball is hit five feet left or right, that's, it's gone and it's, it changes the whole complexion of the game. So a lot of the stars aligned, as I said earlier, um, in a lot of ways that day. Um, my catcher, Nick Durba, he's now the head coach at Maine. Still to this day, one of my favorite catchers I ever threw to. Um, I don't think I had to shake off one time that whole game. If I do shake my head, it's because he's telling me to do it, to try to mess with their heads. So he was kind of my brains. <laughs> Of the operation that day. So I think uh, he deserves a lot of credit as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I got off topic there, but those middle innings were all about just kind of controlling the, the tempo of the game and just keeping it where it was. You mentioned that hit in the sixth inning. It's a, it goes for a one out triple from, from Andrew Brown to the wall, and then you're able to, to get out of it and, you know, hold them scoreless in that inning with a couple big outs following that up. Just how big was that to, to get out of it? I mean, you said it would have changed the whole complexion if the ball goes out, but I mean, even if you allow him to score there, you're, you're, it's still a tie game at that point. Right. Yeah. I think the next pitch was, uh, or the next play was a, a pretty hard hit ball to shortstop. And uh, again, Rene Ruiz in the right spot, infield's in, he's able to check the runner and go to first. And then uh, Jeff Christie, their catcher, is a good, pretty good ball player. I ended up facing him a few times in uh, in pro ball years later. But uh, yeah, I got it's it's a momentum changer when you can, you know, stop a rally with a guy on third base less than two outs. And uh, I was fortunate and able able to do that. So it definitely you could feel the wind kind of leave their sails and. Uh, Every time I walk back into the dugout after a scoreless inning, you can see um, my teammates, <laughs> one one in particular, my roommate, Josh Santier, comes out and strangles me just about every inning because he's so pumped <laughs> up, telling me to kind of keep rolling. I remember that specifically. So um, it was it was a rush. I think when I look back, that those walks off the mound after the third out of, you know, a couple of innings in particular, hearing the uh, the hush of the crowd that was so excited at the beginning of the day. That was probably the, the highlight of the day for me, just feeling that silence. So in the eighth inning, your, your offense comes through with a couple more runs, and they're, they're kind of unconventional. I mean, you get a balk, and then, you know, Rosati kind of just dunks one into left field that, you know, if he hits a little harder or a little softer, it's an out. Was it kind of at that point maybe where reality starts to set in a little bit that not only, A, we're getting some breaks here, this might actually – 
you know, just be our day. And then B, that, that you guys are about to, to, to pull this off, Under, understanding, of course, that you still have work to do. But I imagine at that point, reality sets in a little bit for you guys. It does. Yeah. I, you said it. Um, <clears throat> it was, like I said before, up until that point, it was just, let's just keep it at bay and keep it respectable, keep us close. And then we go ahead and we score two more. Um, at that point, ironically, I think I got more nervous at that point because now it's like, all right, this is mine to lose. Uh, and luckily I didn't let the nerves get the best of me, but, uh, you know, at that point I'm just thinking, all right, six more, six more outs. And I had gone deep into ball games earlier that year and the adrenaline was more than enough to keep me going. I, my pitch count was pretty high up there. Um, but it really didn't, I don't think it, it mattered because like I said, the adrenaline was, was pumping pretty good. So, um, I, I think that if we don't score those two runs in the top of the eighth, I, I think things change a little bit. I think their, uh, their rally in the bottom of the eighth and, the, and in the ninth inning that they had probably go a little different and who knows what would have happened. But I think those two runs in the eighth inning are just as important as the, the first two runs in the second inning. How much did you know about Java before then? I mean, obviously it's a different era, so there's, there's a little less video on there, but you know, it would just be a, a couple weeks later, he goes 46th overall and goes on to, to do what he did. What, what did you think watching him pitch and, and, and what did you know about him before the game? Uh, I'm going to give you really boring answers here because <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I didn't know much about Java Chamberlain. I, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know anything about him. Um, me being a, a self-centered pitcher, uh, <laughs> knowing that I didn't have to step into the box against him. Um, I left, I left the, uh, the scouting reports, the pitching scouting reports to our hitters and our, our hitting coaches. Um, obviously after the fact, uh, you know, you couldn't being, uh, you know, being a New Yorker and him going to the Yankees and him becoming such a huge success with the Yankees, I, you couldn't go two days without hearing his name. Um, yeah, but watching him pitch that day, you could tell there was, there was something special over there. Um, I know he hadn't pitched his best up until that point. I don't think that day was his best, luckily for us. But, um, but it was fun watching him pitch in the pinstripes after that because the more he, the better he did, it was a better boost for our program and, for the whole lore of this game. So um, I never got to meet him, but I, I played with guys that he played with. And uh, so I always uh, had kind of hoped that his, his path would cross with mine, you know, at the next level, it just never happened. So before we get to finishing off the game and in talking about kind of the aftermath of it, I wanted to ask about your dad who gets a little brush with fame. Uh, he gets interviewed on the broadcast in the eighth inning. Uh, did you know that was going on? Did he talk about it after the game? I mean, how, how much did he enjoy his, his little cameo there in, uh, during the broadcast? No, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, he was a little flustered because uh, he, not in the video, but that whole getting to the game was a whole other interview in itself. I'll, I'll leave out the details, but there was a, the whole contingency of Manhattan fans and parents, they were, they arrived at the ballpark while the, like, the national anthem was going on because of some complications to their connecting flight in Chicago or something like that. I don't know. There was, 
it was a stressful day, but uh, luckily my dad was able to be there. Um, he's no longer with us now, but he was able to – I can't remember too many games throughout my career that he wasn't a part of. And uh, it was a really proud, proud moment to have him there. My brother was there. Um, it, was, it was really cool to, to be able to share that experience with him. Um, and I, I didn't know about the interview until after the game was over and probably till a week later when I saw the, the tape of the game. And uh, he obviously did a great job, you know, pretty well-spoken. Um, yeah, it was, it's cool. Now, obviously I can't talk to him about it anymore, but whenever I want to hear his voice, I can throw that game on and, and listen to that interview. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt that has to be kind of a, a cool artifact for, for you and your family to, to have that for sure in your, your big moment. That, uh, yeah, good, that's a very good point there. Um, and then let's talk about the celebration. I mean, the last out gets recorded. Your celebration is noticeably more muted than a lot of your teammates. They almost seem to be trying to get you to, like, be a little bit more excited about it. I mean, is that was that just kind of your style to be a little bit more to downplay things? Or, or were you kind of celebrating inside but wanted to play it cool on the outside? I'm curious if you remember kind of how you were processing that. I think I blacked out, um, <laughs> but uh, no, there's, there was a moment that the, cam the cameras didn't catch um, right as the ball goes into our center fielder, uh, Mike Garcia's glove. It was, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to make a huge scene, I, but I just kind of, I just took my glove and I slammed it on the mound twice. Like it wasn't frustration. It wasn't, it was elation. It was uh, kind of like, look, you know, I told you we could do it. I don't know who I was talking to. It was just kind of like a, uh, expending whatever energy I had left. It just kind of, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but I think, um, yeah, the teammates coming out and giving me big hugs. and It's one of the coolest moments I had, especially in my college career. Um, I was always kind of, you know, act like you've done it before kind of mentality. I always respected players that acted like that. So that's kind of how I wanted to act. But uh, looking back, I probably should have been doing, you know, jumping Jackson around the field because that was such a huge moment. <laughs> so the, the team then goes on to reach the regional final where, where you lose to Miami. Uh, just did the, did you guys feel like you're playing with a little less less pressure or anything or, or um was it was it after that win that it was more like now you want to to you're, you're there for more and, and you want to make sure you go out and, and prove that that wasn't some fluke or what what was the feeling the rest of the weekend we thought we knew we had more in the tank and we uh we went out and we beat you know we lost the next game to miami it was a tough tough game um you know obviously a program of that magnitude has just has the depth and uh, but we, we played well with them in that, that second game. And then the third game we go out and we beat, I think they were the 15th ranked team in the country. Uh, uh, San Francisco, uh, my roommate, my buddy, uh, I still stay in touch with Josh Santier. He goes out and throws a gem against them. And then we have to go out and beat Miami twice. And yeah, it's, it's a big, big mountain to climb, but, the fact that we made it that far and, you know, with our offense, we knew we were capable of, of doing some special things. And, um, 
you know, if you look at the score, it was probably halfway into that game before they really broke it loose. So we, we, we were pretty happy with the way we played. Obviously, nobody wants to go to regional and, and not win it. But uh, I think we uh, played pretty well for ourselves and definitely had our held, heads held pretty high on the way back home. One thing I was struck by watching this game is, you know, uh, you're obviously in coaching now and, and, and Coach Layton is now at Fordham and, and winning a lot of games. And uh, Durba, you mentioned being the head coach at Maine. And Eric Nieto is a longtime scout. Uh, what is it about this group that you think has kind of allowed so many of so many of the individuals that were involved with it to kind of have these these long careers around the game? Uh, I think uh, the coaching staff at the time, you know, obviously you mentioned Kevin Layton. Um, Mike Cole was the assistant coach. Now he's my boss and head coach in Manhattan. Um, they, uh, I think just the baseball mentality that they brought to the ballpark or brought to the field every day when we were their players, um, we had ball players, you know, you know, obviously we were student athletes and we, you know, cared about getting our degree, but I think that team more than any other team I'd been around went to bed thinking about baseball, woke up thinking about baseball, talked about baseball in the cafeteria or we're thinking about baseball in class uh, more than, <laughs> more than we should have been. Uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I think that, that's the easiest way to say it. I think we just had ball players that wanted to be around the game. And obviously that showed, you know, in you to this day, you know, even the guys that didn't go on to, to play or uh, coach, you know, there's still a lot of uh, phys ed teachers that actually coach uh, baseball teams, you know, in the springtime. And it's just uh, the kind of culture that we had. What is it about, you know, the, the NCAA tournament that, that allows for, for these kinds of moments? Do you, do you think like what, 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 why do these kinds of upsets resonate with us and, and, you know, resonate so much with, uh, with, with the players that, that, you know, get to be a part of them that, that we're sitting here talking about this is, is a great upset. And, you know, I, it, it just strikes me that, you know, that, that there's a lot of specialness here that, you know, you guys coming from, you know, a smaller program get to experience uh, in, you know, the tournament against these bigger teams like Nebraska. What, what for you kind of stands out about that, that first round of the, the tournament that, that presents these opportunities? Um, I think the simplest answer is that everyone likes, everyone likes an upset, I think. I mean, depending on how you fill out your bracket during March Madness or, um, you know, it's always interesting to see a, a David versus Goliath type story. Um, and I think in college baseball, when you put anybody's number one against somebody else's number one, it doesn't matter where the, where the program is or, you know, what their history is. Everyone has a shot. So it's, it's kind of cool to, to watch that. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously the, the March Madness uh, basketball tournament gets way more notoriety because it's just it's mayhem for those two weeks or whatever but um you know baseball it's baseball's version of that so nobody fills out I don't know how many people fill out brackets for college baseball but uh I think it's pretty interesting to watch you know uh 
a, a team that normally doesn't make it to the tournament take on a, a top 10 ranked team and in, in their ballpark and uh and turn them away i think it's i think it's a lot of fun i mean i'm biased because that was uh, that was our story but even uh, you know in years in years since it's been fun to watch that and pay attention to when that happens Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we won't get any of that this year. We'll, we'll have to wait for 2021 for the, the next round of, of Davids to, to line up against the Goliaths out there. But uh, it was fun looking back at, at this game and, uh, you know, getting some of that, that tournament magic. And, and we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join us here and, and take a trip down, down memory lane. Absolutely. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. Thank you again to Chris Cody for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. It was, uh, that was a fun game. You know, it was, I've complained about some of these games being very high scoring and this was the opposite. This was a nice pitching duel. So I, I like the, I like the change of pace from that standpoint. I love watching college Jabba Chamberlain pitch, uh, you know, knowing what he'll become. It's, it's really fun to, to see him take the mound in a Nebraska uniform. And obviously the, the whole upset is, uh, is a cool deal. What Chris Cody did was, was impressive. And it was a pretty well-played game all the way around. You know, uh, it, it's not like the, the 94 championship game where Georgia Tech made four errors. And, um, you know, it was, it was a much cleaner game, a, a really well-pitched game, and just a game that Manhattan went out and, and found a way to win. Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. I the first time I went to rewatch this game, I watched it with kind of a. This is a couple of years ago when I first found this game. It's the first time I'd seen it since it originally aired, and um, I found that a couple of the the things that I had wrong about the game, at least from my first memory of it, is that it was a little bit more fluke is not the right word because I knew Chris Cody pitched well. But I mean fluke in terms of I remembered in my head the runs that Manhattan scored were kind of more fluky. Uh, maybe, maybe I was remembering their eighth inning runs because their eighth inning runs that, that broke the game open were kind of weird. You know, there was a balk that scored a run. And I mentioned in the interview, you know, Rosati kind of dumps the ball into left field. And, uh, you know, there was a stolen base from Nieto in there. Uh, so it was definitely manufactured. But they had two home runs off Java Chamberlain on back-to-back pitches in the second inning. And those guys were legit players. You know, Rosati and Fitzpatrick had really good years um, and, and were really impressive players. Um, so I, I kind of was surprised and, and heartened to see that, you know, this actually was a little bit more of a, a, a complete performance from this Manhattan team. You know, Chris mentioned how well they played defense. I agreed. Like I, uh, Rene Ruiz at shortstop was particularly impressive. I really liked what I saw from him there. Um, it also looked like a team that wasn't really super um, intimidated by the situation. They, they never really seemed, nobody seemed out of control. Nobody seemed rattled, uh, least of all Chris Cody, of course. And it was kind of funny before we actually went on air. I, uh, this was on me for, for not, you know, bringing this up on air and, and leaving good material before we hit record. But, um, I asked him, I, I was explaining to him why this game, the story that I told before the interview just now, I kind of told to him the short version. And, uh, he was like, yeah, I didn't even know the game was on TV. Um, it wasn't until, uh, later that I found that out and it's probably good that I didn't know because I would have been more nervous uh, you know because I would have been he's like or, or, you know, and I would have been busy trying to like tell people hey you can watch the game on this channel and you know check it out versus being focused on just getting ready for the game 
Um, so that, that was kind of funny to hear because he, he really appeared in control. And I remember when we talked about this game last week, I, I mentioned that I, I wanted to go back and really pay attention to his start specifically on this rewatch because I seem to remember him really controlling the game. And, and I, I was kind of right and wrong. Um, I was right in that he did feel in control the entire game. Um, he was executing his pitches. Like it really never felt like he made, he made the mistake he mentioned on the triple off the wall in the, in the sixth inning. Um, but by and large, didn't really make a ton of mistakes. The base runners Nebraska got, they hit a few balls hard, but he had a, he had a couple walks, but hit a couple guys. Um, but it, they never really had these long extended rallies against him. And um, anytime he'd get in trouble, he would very quickly get out of it. Um, so in that way, he seemed to control but he didn't necessarily dominate. That's where I think I was wrong, as I seem to remember in my, even having watched this a couple times, leading up to my rewatch this week, I seem to remember more strikeouts and more baffled Nebraska hitters. And there were some instances of that. There were definitely some instances of Nebraska just being way out in front of things and waving at breaking balls. and Especially looking, early in the game. Yes. I mean, they were very off balance early in the game. Um, they got better as the game went on, but still, they never really, it never really felt like they were able to time him uh, just right. So I was kind of right and wrong about my assessment of, of what Chris Cody did. And, and I think it makes it, honestly, a little more impressive that he gave up a run. Because it's one thing if a pitcher just has a career day and a day when nobody's going to touch him. And as Diego Maradona might say, the hand of God just touched him. Um, it's quite another when it's a guy like, no, I mean, he's given up some base runners and he's battling out there and he's just kind of um, – you know, he's just controlling the game. And that's, to me, that's almost more impressive that it wasn't just that he absolutely shredded Nebraska's lineup. Nebraska had their moments against him, but he just kept coming back and fighting. Uh, so I actually came away more impressed with that than maybe if he'd have thrown a shutout in some ways. Look at you being the one to drop the soccer references. This is a soccer podcast <laughs> that's now. A, that's an upset right there. That's <laughs> one of my, one of my few uh, soccer things that I, history of soccer bits that I can drop on you is the Diego Maradona hand of God goal. Well, it is certainly one of the bigger ones <laughs> to get back to the baseball game. Yeah. Like he early on Nebraska, I feel like had chances. They just couldn't get the timing right. And, you know, we touched on that in the interview about him being more of a crafty lefty than a, a power pitcher. Uh, you know, did that, did that help him against a team that was you more used to facing some big or bigger arms? Um, and, and it certainly seemed like it did early in the game. And then Nebraska kind of figures it out a little better, but can never string anything together. He was effectively wild is entirely too strong, but it wasn't like he was a strike machine either. So, you know, I think that that was, you know, kind of an interesting aspect of it that, that you know, he did hit a couple guys and the counts kind of got run up a little bit, but he kept finding ways to win at bats and to throw up clean innings. And, you know, that it's all the more impressive when you see what Jabba Chamberlain is doing. And at times Jabba is entirely dominant in this game. The first inning, especially, I thought he just blew through the Jaspers. And then the second inning starts and on consecutive pitches to open the inning, Manhattan hits two balls out of the park. And I don't know, baseball is really, really weird sometimes that, you know, Jabba Chamberlain, who has all this stuff, and, you know, I get that he wasn't all world that year, but he has all this stuff and looked so good at, at certain times in this game. 
but he left a couple pitches up and Manhattan made him pay. And that was kind of the ball game in some respects. Now, obviously there were tight moments. We talked about the, the triple off the wall and, and, you know, Manhattan getting out of a jam and then adding on a couple runs later, you know, a couple innings later to you know, solidify the game a little better. But, you know, the, the whole thing turned in the second inning because, you know, Manhattan was able to, to, you know, send a couple balls out. And, you know, so many times to beat pitchers like that, you know, the people talk about, wanting to jump on them early and you've got to hit home runs that that's the equalizer. You can't expect to strain innings together. And I, that's kind of what happened here. They, they both jumped early and, you know, made it so they didn't have to strain innings together. And that was enough to, to largely power Manhattan to victory. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great way to put it. And I, the, the first home run happened so quickly, you almost like the announce team felt, it seemed like they were caught off guard a little bit <laughs> and the camera doesn't do a great job of following the ball at all. And so, you know, it's hard to see exactly where the ball is. And then the, they just recovered from that when the second one comes. And um, that was a very quiet stadium at that point. It really did seem to kind of early take the wind out of the Nebraska fan sales. And it was a, a pretty raucous environment to begin with as Nebraska, you know, as Haymarket is when Nebraska is really good. Um, but that, that very quickly seemed to, to change kind of the tenor of the uh, of the game there, I'd be curious on the uh, the pitching side of it for for Chris Cody. I'd be curious to talk to someone on the Nebraska side too, because it almost felt to me I don't I don't know if you felt this way as well, but you know they were definitely out in front early, and they kind of seemed to to figure out a little bit the second time through the order. But then I was trying to get a feel for you know are they putting together good at bats? Are they over aggressive? Are they waiting back too much? And it almost felt like they in some instances, maybe it was because, you know, it wasn't like Chris Cody was pounding the strike zone. Maybe they struggled with putting together like a cohesive plan in some ways, but it never really felt like Nebraska's hitters had much of a cohesive plan of attack up there. Cause there were some very quick at bats, like unproductive, like first pitch, like routine grounders and pop-ups. But there were also a lot of, you know, working deep counts and letting strikes that appeared to be extremely hittable go by almost like they couldn't decide whether they wanted to attack or whether they wanted to try to wait this guy out. And I guess that maybe, maybe the answer there is when you get frustrated, you just, you know, you start to kind of not do a good job of, of doing things according to plan. But I, I really couldn't quite get a feel for if Nebraska was too aggressive or not aggressive enough. And I guess that's kind of what happens when you don't really mount much for nine innings. Yeah. I mean, that's entirely possible. Um, you know, that, this is also a time, as you mentioned, you know, where there wasn't as much video. This wasn't like the early 90s or mid-90s games that we've done where there basically was no scouting report. Like they would have had some stuff, but, uh, you know, I can't imagine Manhattan was really on TV. I don't know how much film Nebraska had. I don't know how much film they would have bothered watching in 2006. Uh, so, you know, it's quite possible that they needed those early innings to kind of try and figure it out and, then you start pressing and then you get out of whatever that they're, you're trying to do anyway. And um, yeah, so that, that's, that's an entirely possible situation. And uh, certainly is what makes some of these one, four matchups where you're facing legitimate aces from the four uh, as tricky as they can be that we often just look at these matchups and, and expect the, the one to overpower 
their opponent on uh, pure talent. But, you know, in, in this first round, if they have a legit number one and Manhattan certainly did, you know, this is, this is what happens. And, you know, I also thought it was notable. He mentioned it a little bit, but we didn't really get into it that they played in some big environments early in the season. Well, one of those environments is on opening day, they were at Tulane a year after Tulane is in the college world series and Chris Cody throws a shutout uh, to, to win one to nothing. And they also played Miami uh, on the road who they would again play in, in this regional, but you know, so they, they played some big time teams, like you said, and you, you have to assume that, that that kind of experience helped a team that had no postseason experience. And then also the fact that they'd come in as hot as they did. LeMoyne had won the, uh, won the MAC that year. And, you know, they had, I think they had to beat them twice in the, the tournament. And, you know, they, they'd gone out and done all of that. And, you know, maybe they're playing with house money, maybe they're hot, whatever it was, they, they come in and they have the confidence to match up against a top 10 team in Nebraska. Yeah, we could just, uh, there was one point where they put up a, a graphic of the Metro Atlantic standings. Um, and it shows Lemoyne winning the league with, I don't know, 21 and five record or something along those lines. So we just pour one out for the Lemoyne Dolphins um, because that really good program just got cut. Um, but it, that was just a, a quick reminder to me that Lemoyne was actually a really good program and was, you know, consistently one of the better programs in the Metro Atlantic and has MLB alumni and program is still around. I guess I shouldn't say they got cut. They just got, uh, they moved down to a lower level, but yeah, Lemoyne um, as a whole moved down. Yeah. So, um, but it was just a reminder for me that, oh yeah, Lemoyne was, uh, was actually a real thing in college baseball. And uh, it's kind of sad. They uh, kind of reminiscent of Birmingham Southern, actually a program you and I had an offline conversation about earlier this week that, um, you know, moved down to a lower division after having a lot of success in division one. So, um, but yes, I, I, I had not realized they had played so many games against big, you know, brand name programs and big time environments. And I think that certainly, certainly played a role. And, you know, as I mentioned, that probably had something to do with them not looking all that intimidated. I mean, this probably wasn't doing it in a regional adds a layer of pressure for sure um, versus a regular season game. Uh, But the environment itself probably wasn't anything super new. um, Anything that some like, unlike anything they'd seen that year. So that, that had to have played, played into their hand for sure. All right, I want to move into some of the kind of ancillary ancillary aspects of this game. And we're going to start with the uniforms. Both of these teams are wearing vests. Nebraska's wearing their white vest with red undershirt. Manhattan's wearing a gray vest with a green undershirt. It is like peak mid-2000s baseball uniforms. And Joe, are you glad to, to see those uniforms? Are you glad that you, we don't see those uniforms much anymore, that, that those have been left in the closet and in the history books? Are you hoping for a revival of the vest? Where, where do you stand on the, the look that we saw? I like it, um, but that has a lot to do with the fact that you mentioned it, it was a very mid-2000s thing. I am a very mid-2000s person. Um, you know, I mentioned I graduated high school in 06, so that's like, uh, you know how they say that uh, – or maybe this isn't a saying, maybe it's just something like my father says, but um, that the SNL cast, you find the funniest is the one that was on the show when you were in high school. Yeah. No people say that. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the thing here where it's like the period of time you remember most fondly for any reason is the things around that time period are what you're going to remember most fondly. So I think there's some of that with the vest jerseys. 
because I do remember them being very much a thing. They were a thing in MLB several years prior to that, but of course, you know, it kind of filters through. Um, I so I would I would support going back to that at some point, but I think it needs to be a thing that cycles. You know, I don't think it's not a timeless look. I don't think um, it's not something I think a team could just commit to outside of maybe the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, the Reds kind of famously did them at the King Griffey Jr. Reds era. They had the the vest jerseys and they were he had a little bit of a timeless look to them. But um, so maybe that's an exception to that. But I don't think it's a particularly timeless look. I think it's something that we have to cycle through and come back to. So I would like to see them again. Um, although I think we should give people the option when they did that. Um, there's that picture out there of uh, D Gordon wearing the vest jersey, but not wearing an undershirt with it. I think if we're going to go with vest jerseys, we should give players the option to just do that and really show off the guns and uh, make it their own. Cause I, th- I think that was at the, uh, the throwback day they did to the, uh, uh, the futuristic uniforms. Yes. Uh, yeah. So which were, were vest uniforms back in the nineties. And then I think it maybe was just Seattle that did them again, but they, they kind of, brought those back for a period, you know, for a brief period of time. So uh, that was what that picture was from, I believe. So um, I say, if we're going to bring it back, let them, let them have that much latitude, let them go with the undershirt or, or not, or the long sleeves, however they want to do it. Yeah. So I guess, I think my opinion of the vest is clouded because growing up in Cleveland, the Indians vests, I did not like, they had the white vest and they wore blue underneath and I didn't like the look. I, it wasn't a good uniform. I, I don't like looking at pictures of, of that era, like when they're wearing those uniforms. So I think that's clouding it a little bit. Now that I'm thinking about this more though, like my high school, like we were wearing vests around this time and uh, everyone was very excited when those came out of like the box and, and they were shown to us new. So Maybe I felt a little differently about it then, but I don't know. Watching it today, I'm I'm okay with leaving them in the past. I, I'm I'm not really feeling it, but yeah. I mean, talk to me in ten years, and and maybe I'll be ready to to go back to to the vest. Maybe I just need a little more time. But I really don't like the gray vest. I think that that look for Manhattan was was not great. The the white vest, the red undershirt, like you can do that pretty sharply, like Nebraska did, like like the Reds do, like that that one can work for me, but I was not feeling Manhattan's gray vests quite as much. Yeah, I'm going through like pictures on uh, Google here of like some of the vest uniforms and it's not a comprehensive list by any stretch of the metrics, but I guess maybe the, <laughs> maybe the Rockies still do one, but it's like black on black. So it's not really that stark. Um, because I, I'm looking at a picture here of, uh, or maybe that's, I don't know, either way. They certainly had that in the past. I don't know if that's current. Yeah, I mean, it's relative, there's a picture of, Charlie Blackman wearing it. So it wasn't that far in the past if this is a picture from, from, you know, several years ago. So um, anyway, so I guess maybe the the look is not completely dead at this point, but certainly not nearly as common as it was in the mid 2000s when everyone was tripping over themselves to get a, a vest Jersey going. We also got during this game uh, some absolutely exquisite interviews with the sideline reporter. Um, one of them was, you know, you, we, we heard Cody mention that, you know, the whole traveling party had had some trouble uh, getting to Lincoln from Manhattan that day. And you get it in full detail. One of the parents lays it out completely. And that's the entire interview is just this parent explaining the travel problems uh, of getting to, uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska from Manhattan. Uh, so that was enjoyable. 
also enjoyable was them going out and finding some kid on the berm. And I say kid, he was like a college student who was just there for the day. Uh, that was, uh, th- there was some, there was some great like color being added to the broadcast in that standpoint. But I also, I, the, the point I actually wanted to make here is that in a pregame interview with uh, Kevin Lighton, he mentions that he's never been to Nebraska before and how quiet it is in Lincoln as compared to Manhattan and how there are no garbage trucks waking him up at seven in the morning or, or earlier. And I just, I thought that was, uh, that was spectacular. Just the, you know, the Manhattan college is like right there. And it, you know, it's, it's not one of these big college campuses like, like Nebraska or, you know, any, any number of, of schools around the country, it's right there in the, in the heart of the city. And, you know, it, their reality is, is so much different than, than what you would expect, um, you know, for a, a typical college experience when you're seeing it in a movie or maybe even just imagining it, it's a little different. And so I, I enjoyed the, the contrast that was going on, uh, you know, just in, in, in terms of you're seeing a, at the time, uh, you know, a big 12 team in Nebraska playing this Metro Atlantic team, but also just like the differences in, in Nebraska versus Manhattan. You could definitely tell in the broadcast that uh, NET was like feeling its, its oats a little bit. And they were like, we're, we're really going to blow this out, which that's not a criticism. Like I appreciate that. Like they decided, okay, with this regional and maybe all the Nebraska broadcasts they did, you know, locally were, were done this way. I, I certainly, I don't know, but, um, if it, if it was specific to the regional, they just decided they were really going to blow this stuff out because they, they had the sideline reporter doing all that stuff. And my favorite part of that was the interview with the kid on the berm where the, the first question is just kind of more or less like, are you know, are you out here just because you, you know, you wanted to be here for this game? Are you excited? And he was just like, yes. And like, that was the only answer given. Like that was, that was a highlight for me. Um, but, <laughs> um, but then there were also, they did these things like throughout the game where as a certain batter was stepping to the plate, they would cut to like a clearly pre-recorded interview from, I guess it was from the previous day's workout, um, asking the coach, Kevin Layton or, or Mike Anderson uh, about a certain player. And they would just cut in like when the, when the guy would come to bat with the interview, with the snippet of the interview about that player, um, which I thought was like sometimes was a little much because they were clearly trying to like hurry and shove them in while the guy batted. So I found it a little bit distracting, but also like not the worst idea. Like I think there's definitely something there. Um, most times this gets expressed just because that, that interview has happened, but the broadcasters just have it written down as notes and they'll just kind of intersperse the information. Um, that's how kind of we do that most of the time, but th- this was definitely an interesting concept. I don't know that I liked it or didn't like it. I don't think I really have a take on it, but it was just an interesting thing that I think, um, was I don't know if it was more common then or not. I don't really remember this, but like it definitely was something they were trying and I appreciate them for trying it. I don't know, like I said, don't know that I liked it or not, but it was, it was certainly an attempt at something there. Yeah. They, uh, they're going for it. And you know, the back then you didn't have the, the coach in the dugout interview. So that was, I guess, a way to get the, the coaches into the broadcast, which uh, you know, it was nice in, in some respects, in some ways I didn't like it, but I think maybe because they now can talk to the coach during the game, they they don't feel like they have to do that. And also it is frankly kind of awkward to 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 try and do it. Yeah, they, I, I mean, it, it felt like they, they, they did it probably like eight or ten times. It felt like maybe it, it should lot, have been like yeah. four. 
you know, yeah. like talk about the starting pitchers and then pick one of your stars, essentially. It, it felt like maybe they went to that well a little too much. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. The postscript on this is interesting in that Manhattan goes on, reaches a regional final in, again, the first NCAA tournament appearance in 49 years. They get back to the tournament again the next year um, and have been a relatively solid program in the conference, I would say, uh, for the last 15 years. And, you know, obviously Java Chamberlain goes on to become a very big star, I guess. I don't think that's too big to put on him. Uh, in New York, it was maybe a brief moment where, where Jabba was seemingly everywhere, but for a while he was seemingly everywhere. I was actually at the game in the um, ALDS against the Indians with the midges uh, where he you know melted down as all the bugs off of Lake Erie that it happens in Cleveland at that time of year, uh, usually a little earlier in the year, that was a little late for that to be happening, um, are flying around him and He's facing off, I believe, that day against uh, the artist formerly known as Fausto Carmona. Uh, I was I was covering that game for a weekly paper in Cleveland, and that was that was amazing. And, and so to, that's only a few years after you know this this game in Lincoln. And so you know just to to, to go back and watch this, knowing what's going to happen with him and and what's going to happen with the Nebraska program and. And we talked about this on the last podcast when we were introducing this game. That in a lot of respects, this game kind of represents the beginning of the end of the, you know, the, the golden era of Nebraska baseball. And you know, so it, it, it has, it, it's a very interesting game on its own. And then it has all of these, you know, when, when you look at it in, in full context, there, there's a lot of other intrigue going on around the game. First off, I've always respected Fausto Carmona because it wasn't his real name like Roberto Hernandez. Yes. Wasn't it? He really went for it with Fausto Carmona. <laughs> like, that's a great name. Like, I've always respected him for just not just, you know, going with another, like, extremely generic name. Like, he really went for it with that name. So I always appreciated that about him. Um, you mentioned Manhattan in that period of time. And this was actually probably, and <laughs> admittedly with me not being a Manhattan Jaspers historian, um, but I'm pretty confident in saying that this was the time Kevin Layton was there was probably the the best run of form for this program. Um, they finished so Kevin Layton was there six years, oh six to eleven. Their finishes in the Metro Atlantic were second, second, first, first, fourth, first. Uh, win totals of 34, 35, 31, 35, 31, 34. Two regional appearances, oh six and eleven. Um, and now he's at Fordham and um, doing quite well. Obviously, we're a regional team last year and were among the favorites in the Atlantic 10 again this year. Um, so this was kind of a, almost the beginning of a run for Manhattan to become um, a really consistent, um, a really consistent program within that conference and, and at least regionally and, and sometimes nationally. Um, I was a little bit maybe unfair to Nebraska when I, last week we were talking about how it was kind of the beginning of the end of this glory, these glory days for Nebraska. And that I still, that is true. Um, but they did host in 08, and I'd kind of forgotten that. That so just two years after this, they get to a regional in 07, um, you know, with a 32 and 27 record. So it wasn't a great year, but they get to a regional in Tempe, and then they host again in 08 with a 41, 16, and one record. Um, but that was the last regional under Mike Anderson. So they actually the tail was a little bit longer than I'd realized, but I but I still think 
there is something symbolic about them getting to a regional 06 and hosting and then and then going to and out as kind of a sign of um you know things maybe eroding a little bit there at nebraska so uh, it was maybe a little bit unfair to him though uh with with how abrupt it was because there certainly was still a little bit to come in terms of, of high quality seasons for for nebraska so um like i said last time interesting interesting moment in time um you know with this game with with manhattan kind of ascendant nebraska still trying to keep things going at the top of the, of the college game and then um you know being able to to uh, take this moment and project it to what we would see in the years to come. All right. So let's put a wrap on this game. It was again, a, an enjoyable game and you can find it over on YouTube or uh, through Joe's article at baseballamerica.com. Uh, 10 great games you can watch on YouTube right now. And Joe actually has a sequel to that because it's been about a month since we published the first one and we figure you might be starting to to run out of those games if you're if you're looking for some more college baseball in your life. So Joe has a new one of uh, a new set of ten games that, that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, that post went up at baseballamerica.com today, so you can check that out. And it is from that set of games again, this new set of games that we are choosing our next podcast, next next classic game. We're going to break down on the podcast. Uh, so, Joe, why don't you tell the people what we are going to be talking about a week from now? Uh, we're going back in the Wayback Machine to an era that we have gone to a couple times already. We are uh, tearing through the early to mid-90s College World Series games. We're going to be talking about the 1992 CWS Championship, another All-West Coast matchup, uh, Pepperdine and Cal State Fullerton. Um, great game, just game in and of itself. Close game, a lot of big moments in it. Um, you have the best player in college baseball that year in Fullerton's Phil Nevin, who went on to have a long uh, career in the big leagues. It's also a program-defining win for the for the Waves. It's you know they're they've always been a at this at this point in time in '92 they had always been a really good program. They'd been to Omaha in, in 1979, um, hadn't broken through um, with a national title. I mean it was just a one Omaha trip prior, so um, but they got through on their second trip, but, but without this national title, I think it kind of changes the way we think about Pepperdine as a program. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I struggled to find the exact best comp for it, but um, you know, with, if Pepperdine just, and I put in air quotes, cause getting to Omaha is such an incredible achievement and you, you can kind of hang your head on that in and of itself. But, you know, Pepperdine was a program that was getting to the postseason every single year. And if it just was that plus trips to Omaha in 79 and 92, and that was kind of it. I don't, I don't know that we talk about them the same way we do now, which is sure they're not maybe what they were at that time in terms of, of powers in college baseball, but they're still a respected program uh, that gets to regionals a fair amount, uh, was one game away from getting back to Omaha as recently as 2014. Uh, so certainly good history there. Uh, the present is really good. Obviously the 2020 team, I would have loved to have see how this, this season wrapped up with there because they were off to a, a great start. Um, but without the 92 national title, uh, I think we maybe look at them a little bit differently. And, and obviously for, for their sake, it's a good thing that's not the case. And, and we get to look at Pepperdine as, as this kind of great underdog national champion, which was kind of the crowning achievement of a period of time where they were as consistent as, as any program not named, I don't know, Fullerton or USC out on the West Coast. I mean, frankly, I think we look at the entire West Coast Conference differently, right? Because without them you know, you have good programs there. You have Gonzaga and, and you have, 
San Diego and, you know, th- these are, you know, consistent winners with a decent amount of history on them, but it's also now a conference that has a national champion in it. And, you know, I, I just think the, you know, they, this win and everything else that Pepperdine has done, but, but especially this win kind of elevates not only Pepperdine, but the entirety of the West Coast Conference. That's a good point. I mean, it does have a little bit of, add a little bit of weight to it. I mean, that's, that's probably not, I mean, let's, in an alternate history, let's pretend that Rice is still in the whack. You know, it kind of is the same thing. Or, I mean, I guess for that matter, you know, Fresno State and the Mountain West Conference. Um, you know, uh, so, there, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. It really does kind of elevate and give that conference a little bit of heft that it might not might not otherwise have. So that, that's a really good point there. Uh, a quick little note on this game. If you, if you watch it from the link in the post, um, it is not the best quality. Uh, the video on YouTube, it is still watchable. I would still suggest you do so. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from doing so. However, uh, you know, we are obviously at the mercy of the copies of these that were uploaded to YouTube. This is not the best specimen, uh, but it is out there. We're thankful to have it out there. It is still very watchable. Um, so I just, but a warning up top. So um, basically do not add us if you think the video quality <laughs> is not, this is what I'm really getting at here. Do not add us to be angry about the video quality. We apologize. We did not do the recording. Um, it is an older game. We are just very much at the mercy of the quality of the recording, probably originally on a VHS tape uh, that these individuals had. So we're, we're just thankful to have it and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bear it for a game and it'll be fine. We'll have a good time watching it and um, that'll be that. So one thing that I've never been clear on is like, if you were recording back in the days of rabbit ears, like, were you just recording whatever came across? So like, if your rabbit ears went fuzzy for a bit, did it then just get fuzzy too on the recording? Or did it like capture the signal a little better? I don't know. I I guess I should be going back and watching my own recordings if I had like a VHS player, but Joe, as a noted VHS scientist or, or expert, I suppose, uh, what what is the, am I misremembering how these things work that like, if there was then just like, if it went fuzzy on you, your recording would go fuzzy too, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I just think it literally, um, we are all the, get, all the, older people, so all the people messages. older than us listening to this podcast right now are just like, oh my God, they're so young. Yeah, they're just like <laughs> apoplectic at this point, just like. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely going to get, I have a feeling Mike Rooney is going to text us about this. Like that is like a 100% guarantee he's going to text us about VCR recordings. But yeah, I think it pretty much just recorded whatever came across your screen. I do remember, I, so my family had digital cable. Well, at that time we called digital cable. Um, it was basically just the set top box. It was like version 1.0 of that. And, but I still had a VCR I was recording things off of. I was, in addition to being a baseball nerd, I was like a comedy nerd. So I was speaking of SNL, I was like recording reruns of SNL on Comedy Central on VHS tapes that I would watch back. And um, so I, my, my nerddom has, has reached into other areas of life. But, um, but when, if you didn't have, you know, it turned, the, the, the receiver turned on just right and you were recording, you could have the TV off, but you still had to have the set-top box turned on or, so, you know, it was something like that. So once you got to digital cable, it was a little bit different, um, but still equally as frustrating if you didn't do it just right. But yeah, I think you were just kind of at the mercy of whatever popped up on your TV screen, no matter how good or bad your reception was. What a time. What, what, what a time to be alive. Indeed. Well, we will be back uh, next Friday with uh, a breakdown of that 92 
College World Series championship game. We will be joined by a guest. Uh, the guest is not booked yet, so we'll uh, we'll get you who that guest is as soon as we can. I uh, I am just as eager to find out as you are, probably more eager even. Um, before we get out of here, Joe, I just discovered while we were recording that one of those um, memes with the quarantine houses has, you know, Whataburger has joined the fad. You might say a week late, but Whataburger has just posted one of those to Twitter. And as the noted uh, Whataburger aficionado that you are, I'm going to ask you to choose your Whataburger quarantine house. Uh, th thank you for, for asking. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, first of all, they're a week late on this because they have uh, been doing the good work as an essential business of serving delicious food uh, to all those who need it in these trying times in our world. So that's, you're welcome, you're welcome for their service. Um, so I go and, and we'll have to, you know, obviously go, go find the graphic yourself. They, uh, you'll have to follow along here because I won't read all six houses, but uh, Whataburger tweeted it. So it's out there. Um, so house number three is my, um, my choice here. So that's Whataburger number one, which is just the, the, um, standard burger. Um, the item number two is the honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich. And item number three is the breakfast burger. Now I'm kind of a on the breakfast burger, I'll admit, but I love the honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich, which is exactly what it sounds like. And just the standard burger, because again, to the point I've made before about Whataburger, it's less about the burger itself and it's more about what you can do with it. Whataburger is very good about letting you customize and throw a whole bunch of stuff on your burger. So you can, I think it's just a really good blank canvas for whatever you want to do. So that's, I think where I'm going there. House number five is also strong. The sweet and spicy bacon burger um, is a really good option. If you want a little different burger, the triple meat Whataburger can't really go wrong with that. Um, if you're, if you're really hungry though, you gotta be really hungry. <laughs> um, their third item uh, is the honey butter chicken biscuit, which is super underrated at Whataburger. It gives you that sweet, salty dichotomy, which is always really nice. Um, it's, I guess, ostensibly a breakfast item, but really good any time of day. Um, so an unsung hero there in the three spot from house number five, I think kind of pushes it up to being my number two choice on this list. I think uh, that I, I, I do not have as much Whataburger experience and, and probably truly cannot be counted on to, to pick my own house uh, in, in this situation. But five is a, is a strong option. Uh, there's nothing wrong with three either. I, I would say I have not had the breakfast burger. I'm not really a breakfast burger guy. So I, I really have no interest in having it. But the, the first two options are, are certainly good. I do think number four with the patty melt the barbecue bacon burger and the grilled chicken sandwich is pretty steady. Uh, and, you know, you, given all the customization kind of things you can do there, there's, uh, there's just a, a, it's a pretty blank canvas to work with. And, and I think I, I appreciate uh, what that house is providing as well. Yeah. You get some good variety there too. The patty melt is good. Whataburger is kind of known for its patty melt as well. So that's, that's a solid choice there. And, I think the grilled chicken sandwich is good variety, something a little bit lighter, um, different flavor profile. So yeah, I, I, you know, house, I could live with house four too, for sure. I'm going to guess you could live with pretty much any of these houses. Also true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you guys can check that out on Twitter. Joe may at this point have, have retweeted it into some sort of like 12 tweet thread explaining uh, all of the choices. We'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, again, we, we were just introduced to this while we were recording the podcast. So uh, that, that is, it's happening live basically is what I'm saying. 
with that, we uh, we will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast next week. Again, we are going twice a week during this uh, during the spring, at least potentially throughout the off season. We'll see where things take us. Uh, but for right now, we are continuing our twice a week schedule. We will be back here on Tuesday. We will have a news year podcast. The, the first podcast of the week is the news year one. The second one is us watching these classic games. And next Tuesday, we will be joined by Rutgers head coach, Steve Owens. He is joining us in part because this week we, uh, we released the first in a series that we're calling Coaching Confidential, in which I polled 90 head coaches across the country on a variety of topics, uh, you know, covering a, a, a whole gamut of, of things in college baseball. The first question we have is who is the most underrated coach, head coach in the country? Steve Owens was voted as the most underrated coach in the country. So he will be joining us. Uh, he has um, you know, a, lot, a lot to talk about just in terms of what's been happening at Rutgers. This was his first, is his first year in Piscataway and it was an eventful one, you know, ignoring what, what happened at the end with the cancellation, just leading up to that. Um, there, there was a lot going on there. Uh, most notably, I would say, uh, Rutgers had a refueling incident on their final road trip of the season, and a whole bunch of their gear was uh, covered in jet fuel. So interested to hear about that, interested to hear um, you know, about the aftermath of that, and now uh, how he is going about building the Scarlet Knights program. He's an absolute winner everywhere he's gone. He's actually never had a losing record if we throw out this year's uh, I believe there was six and nine record because it wasn't played to completion. He, he had never had a losing record before, which is an incredible achievement and something he did at three different schools across basically three different levels of baseball. So very interested to, uh, to get Steve Owen's thoughts about the direction of the Rutgers program uh, as, as we move into to the future here. So that's what you'll have in your podcast feeds next Tuesday. You can subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. Please subscribe, please rate, please review. We appreciate all of those things, and they, they do help other people to find the podcast as well. Uh, you can follow Joe and I on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We are continuing to post plenty of content over at the website. There will be a new Coaching Confidential survey question uh, next week. We've got, we'll have a new top 25 on Monday. Joe has this new ranking of um, the, uh, the, or not a new ranking, a new list of games you can watch on YouTube. And uh, I recently did a, a deep dive into some rosters to try and determine who is going to be most affected by seniors coming back, like which programs are going to be most affected by, by seniors coming back and which programs might be most affected on the other end by a larger than normal freshman class, given the fact that the MLB draft will be shorter than it typically is by about 35 rounds, potentially. So you can check all of that out over at baseballamerica.com. We'll be back here on Tuesday. And until then, you can check out the, the game that we're doing for next Friday. Again, that is Pepperdine's 1992 National Championship title game against Cal State Fullerton. So check that out over on YouTube or at BaseballAmerica.com. 
We'll talk to you again on Monday. I want to thank Chris Cody for joining us. Thanks to Joe for joining me as always. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.